right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Elections Weekly. Uh, I'm your host, Eric Cunningham. And with us this week, we have a couple regulars. We have uh, Dylan Wade, um, and we have Joe Szymanski, who's uh, he's back this week after the uh, the we're, we're going to be going over tonight. We're going to be going over the Massachusetts results. The, the long saga has concluded. The primaries there are mostly done and mostly decided. And we're also going to go over some of the polling trends that have been happening lately. Is there a Trump bounce? Is it looking better for him in some states? And and what are the polls showing? So that's going to kind of be our um, our agenda for tonight. So let's go ahead and just start right off the bat with uh, Massachusetts. Uh, the big news out of Massachusetts was, of course, the, the Senate primary. Uh, the long saga has concluded, and it appears at the moment that Ed Markey has defeated Joseph Kennedy by over 10% or by around 10 percentage points. He's leading by 9.8 currently. Uh, there's a couple more towns that have yet to report and a couple more votes that have to go fully in. It's not a question of how mu- of if Markey will win at this point, but by how much. Um, if you look at the results overall, and I'll go ahead and pull up a, a map here so you can kind of see um, the results of the, of the race so far. Um uh, you'll notice here, Markey did really well around Boston, where he used to represent in Congress, whereas uh, Joseph Kennedy did pretty well in a lot of smaller and mid-sized cities like Lowell, uh, Worcester, Springfield, and uh, Brockton, as well as in more uh, white working class areas. So, for example, the, the kind of the corridor from Spring, Springfield to Worcester, um, and then the sort of area around you know, Plymouth counties, the basically the areas around the coast. Um so obviously at the start of the race, this was generally considered to be something Joe Kennedy had in the bag. He was up by double digits, 10, 20 points. And now he's uh, he's uh, not only out of a Senate race, he's out of a job because his congressional primary he did not run in. So uh, come next cycle, he will not be a member of Congress anymore. This is the first loss for Kennedy uh, in a congressional race in Massachusetts and basically forever. Um, so kind of a big blow. So I guess I'll kind of throw it off to you guys. Uh, what are your thoughts on this race, how it went, and uh, what we can take away from it? Um, I think this shows a couple really interesting things. Um, it shows that you can't just run on your name anymore. Um, this is the second political dynasty to go down this year. Um, mm-hmm. And for Markey, it shows that you can have a really kind of abysmal record um, for most of your career and if you tie yourself to the if you actually commit to progressive causes later the progressives will back you um mm-hmm. yeah marky is kind of the test case for what biden could have done yeah because he's basically um he obviously had a long record in congress he tried to run for the senate in the 1980s uh dropped out at the last minute when he realized he wouldn't win the primary and then basically had to fight to hold his congressional seat uh, he did so successfully and waited another 27 years to run for Senate, uh, defeated Republican Gabriel Gomez in, in the 2014 special election there by only around 10 percentage points, not a great margin for Massachusetts overall. Um, and since then, so because of that he was seen variously as a fairly weak incumbent, but as you said, he kind of committed himself specifically to the Green New Deal. Uh, he'd obviously had a long track record on environmental issues, but this one specific issue seemed to be something that was really able to to uh, mobilize young voters specifically that weren't going for Kennedy, the younger, more photogenic candidate. They were going for a guy whose campaign was frankly mostly consisting online of cringy memes roasted by Zoomers. I mean, all things considered, it was an interesting result. You know, for for me, I think, you know, a, a really big thing here with Mark, well, not just with Marky in Massachusetts, but also, also with uh, Richard Neal, 
and Stephen Lynch to, well, really Neil and Markey, is that in so many of these races where we've seen incumbents lose their primaries, it's partially because they just seem to have either not taken the race seriously or to have given up. Uh, neither Neil or, or especially Marky, like you said, Eric, uh, did mm-hmm. that. They, they went ahead. They went as hard as they could, and they spent money, and, and they really just kind of played the game. You know, they, they did as much as they could to drive out turnout. I mean, if you look at that map, I mean, look at how good Marky does – in not just in Boston even, but around it, you know, Newton, places like Newton, Cambridge, Waterton, you know, the, the margins that he has there are, are incredible for a candidate mm-hmm. who was kind of thought to be dead in the water. I mean, he nearly won by 20,000 votes in Cambridge. That, mm-hmm. that, that's an insane margin. Yeah, he got 69% of the vote in Brookline. He won Provincetown, which is one of the more liberal cities in the state, with 57% of the vote. Um, yeah. I mean, he did really and well the with Berkshires. Yeah, he, it's an interesting coalition, too, because he wins basically with, with Boston and Boston suburbs and then the Berkshires and some towns out west. The rest, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the other three major cities, Springfield, Worcester, and Lowell, all, all went for Kennedy by differing amounts, but they all went for him. Mm-hmm. As well as and Brockton, he, which is in more a working-class city, uh, went yeah. for him with 64% of the vote. Yeah, so I mean, it's just it's it's a very interesting coalition for Markey, but it's one that's definitely it's one that allowed him to win, and that's mm-hmm. all that for him. That's all that really matters now. He's kept his seat. He will be in there for probably likely, I would think, at least I would say potentially his last six years as a member of Congress. He is definitely one of the older members, uh, for sure, to be there. And with staving off this, you would say that. This, even this race might have been his last, true, honestly, but he's he saved it. He saved it off uh, by a margin. I don't know. Even a week ago, I don't think people maybe would have said he's going to do this by ten points. You know, I don't think mm-hmm. people would have said that ten week a week ago even. Yeah, and no, really, what's I, yeah. I'm sorry. Sorry, no, no. The day of, I wouldn't have said that. Yeah, I, I mean, it was yeah. by four. <laughs> mm-hmm. But there was a clear polling trend the last few weeks, and some of them did show a 10-point lead. I think Emerson had a 10-point lead for Markey. Um, and it actually traced pretty perfectly with what the coalitions were because Kennedy's coalition straight up is white voters without a college degree and some more minority uh, you know, Hispanic uh, and black voters, which, of course, there really aren't that many of in Massachusetts outside of Boston, where, where Ed Markey did very well. Uh, if you actually look at the map right here where it goes um, – Honestly, his it tracks really well with the old Richard Neal district, the old third district. It tracks really well with the Republicans tend to do well in Massachusetts, specifically in the you know in the, in the kind of the, the this portion along here that goes all the way down to Nantucket. Granted, they don't do very well in in Nantucket or in some of those coastal areas, but inland uh, is a relative stronghold for them. I mean, the center of the state, uh, he did really well in those sorts of areas. It just he had a problem with college educated voters and in Boston specifically, and in a state where. Boston is by far the largest city. Uh, you kind of need to do better than there. Yeah, I mean it's yeah. it's it's utterly it's utterly just. I think it's a real shock in the end to Kennedy. I mean, he definitely came into this thinking that he was going to walk. I feel like uh, he didn't walk, and uh, we're really seeing kind of the uh, the blowback of that in this map. The the people of Massachusetts have decided they want more of the same from an incumbent and not more of the same from a Kennedy. 
that's really kind of <laughs> the end that the end goal that we've had here in the Senate race. Yep. Yeah. And it would be it would be remiss not to mention the Republican side of the the Senate races that uh, as well. Uh, they had a contentious primary between Kevin O'Connor, who by all accounts seems like a fairly normal human being, and uh, Shiva Ayadurai, who is uh, known for numerous conspiracy theories, claimed to be the inventor of the email, and more recently has argued that the election was rigged against him because he won his hometown um, in his primary, and that proves that they were rigging the vote somehow um, by giving him his hometown. Um, obviously, Republicans don't have a chance in this race, but they would prefer to have a candidate who is not crazy as opposed to someone who is a more extreme Joanne Perkins. Um, obviously, this race is safe Democratic. There's no chance Markey loses. It will be interesting to see what the coalition are, because Republicans have tended to overperform in Senate races in Massachusetts. Keep in mind, this means losing by 10 or losing by 20. But Jeff Deal did manage to win uh, Plymouth County against Elizabeth Warren last time. Um, Trump being at the top of the ticket doesn't help things here, but I would be interested to see that overall. But obviously the, the marquee race here was the Democratic side. They had many more votes. I mean, you just look at the totals here. Uh, I mean, over I mean, over 1.5 million votes cast in the Senate primary, which is just, I mean, uh, well, not over 1.5 million, over one point, around 1.4 million, which is kind of ludicrous for a, a primary. I, I um, believe, I, I could be wrong about this, but I believe I read that that's the most uh votes than a Massachusetts Democratic primary not at the presidential levels ever had. That would not surprise me. I mean on the Republican side in comparison, there were, I believe, uh under three hundred thousand votes. So just to give you an idea of the of the difference here, um it was substantial. Yeah. Um, obviously and- Massachusetts is unique in that it's it has mostly nonpartisan unaffiliated voters. Um so really very few voters are affiliated with the Republican or Democratic parties. So there was a conscious choice for a lot of voters to vote in this in the Democratic primary, which basically is the election. Yeah, I'm curious to see what Markey's margin is going to be. Um, mm-hmm. He, I think it's fair to say he's going to win by more than he did in 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's also gotten his name out there more, um, energized his base a little bit more. So I'm curious if he matches or maybe surpasses Warren's margins. Yeah. His, his margin in 2014 for what we're talking about here was the, the regular election was he won 61.9 to 38, which is a, I mean, considering Republicans in the presidential race have tended to get like around 31%. Um, that's not bad. And then of course, in the special election in 2013, I misspoke and said it was 2014 earlier. He only won by 10.2 percentage points um, in a very low turnout race. So obviously this time, would like to see more. Um, Elizabeth Warren was the one who ran last time and she has specific problems with working class voters in Massachusetts um, that kind of made her a little bit underperformed there, especially relative to, you know, the top of the ticket. Right. Yeah. Because I don't, I don't think there's a huge, a huge indication that, um, that Markey is going to underperform to the same degree. No, it, it would be counter, uh, counterintuitive if he did. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Any other thoughts on the Senate primary here before we go on to the rest of the races? Um, no, just kind of surprising that Kennedy couldn't get those 10 extra points that he needed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he basically found a way to blow a race as a Kennedy in, a Ma- in Massachusetts. That's uh, that's an achievement that will kind of live forever, I think. Yep. So he's kind of written himself into the history books that way. 
Yeah, um, I, I guess now I'm curious how he tries to revive his political career. I've heard he wants a cabinet position. That's what Forbes was talking about, giving him some sort of uh, position in the Biden administration. But I can't imagine um, it'd be too high ranking given you know he, he lost. Um, no. He'll get an ambassadorship. Yeah, the ambassadorship to Ireland or something. <laughs> and then he'll try to run for governor or president off of that. <laughs> and he'll get demolished by Charlie Baker for his fifth term or something ridiculous like that. <laughs> um, so moving on to the second biggest race, which was in the first congressional district, a longtime congressman, Richie Neal, uh, was running for re-election in the Democratic primary renomination and defeated his progressive challenger, Alex Morse, uh, 59 to 41, in what was perceived to be a very competitive primary, um, and it did prove to be certainly contentious. There were a lot of ups and downs during the campaign, some allegations that whether or not you believe what what The Intercept says uh, could have been true or could have been false or could have been a smear campaign. But regardless, he won, and he won with a pretty impressive coalition. Um, he, he managed to win not only his hometown of Springfield, which is uh, the largest city in the district. He won it by almost a two-to-one margin. He also won all of the five largest towns in terms of votes in the district. He won, and most uh, embarrassingly for Alex Morse, who was the mayor of Holyoke, uh, he lost Holyoke by around uh, 400 votes to Richard Neal. So, um, and that's a pretty large, large town. It's not a small area. So that was definitely not something that he was planning on doing. On the bright side, he uh, Morse did manage to win a few smaller towns, but overall it was a really strong performance from, from Richie Neal driven in, in large part by that strong performance in those larger urban areas. I'll go ahead and show you a picture of the district here just so you can get an idea of what we're talking about here. Um, so the district is basically stretches across the Berkshires and then into some areas like Springfield and then some more conservative leaning areas of, uh, of Worcester County, which is a, uh, which the, the mainly is a function of, of diluting Republican votes, but really there's not that many there to begin with. So this is an overwhelmingly democratic seat uh, Richie Neal has never been at any risk of losing in his district. And um, yeah, so he managed to win a pretty impressive performance here. So what are you guys' thoughts on on how he did and what this kind of means for uh, progressive challengers uh, in Massachusetts? So I always thought that Neal was kind of a long shot um, in terms of primarying. He raised $13 million. Uh 91% of candidates who raise the most money win. So challenging Neil was always a tough bet. Um, Morse, I think on paper was a great candidate. Um, didn't prove to tighten the margin as much as I thought he did, uh, as much as I thought he would. Um, but yeah, I'm not really all that surprised by Neil's victory. If anything, I'm surprised by how much he won by. Yeah, and I'll go ahead and pull up for our viewers um, on on the podcast uh, or on YouTube that are watching live right now. Um, I'll go ahead and show you kind of what we're talking about with these margins because they're really impressive for him overall. Um, you know, uh, over 7,000 vote margin in Springfield, 3,000 vote margin in Chicopee, uh, 1,500 in Pittsfield, 400 votes in Holyoke, 1,200 in Westfield. Like these are the large cities in the district. Um and you're not going to be winning if you're a primary challenger when you're losing by those margins. Um, mm -hmm. It just, it just not happening. Yeah. I think, I think for me, you know, this was kind of the first time we've seen a, a progressive justice Democrats candidate in the last three, four months who, you know, has gotten 
the boatloads of hype and you know attention and funds you from you know places especially on like social media and stuff he Morris is kind of the first one to lose mm-hmm. uh, really since covid started you know it's he's he's really the first one to lose that's gotten the hype that's gotten all the attention uh, and it's i was surprised by how big he lost by i thought we were looking at you know a, a 10 point margin i thought you know to see it at basically 17 points 17 18 points you know that was that was pretty shocking to me and it and it shows to richard neal's strengths as a candidate to me i mm-hmm. i appreciate it i like candidates as a republican i would much rather have someone like neal than Morse in this seat, even though I agree, I disagree with 99% of what Neil believes in. I disagree with what 100% of Morse believes in. So obviously, as a Republican, I'm happy with this result. But, uh, you know, I think the margins in the big cities is what, what it, like Eric mentioned, is really what is the key here. I mean, the, the cities is where you kind of expect progressives to do better in. And uh, Morse just wasn't able to do that. He got blown out in Springfield wasn't able to shrink the margins to decent margins in places like Chicopee and Pittsfield. He lost Holyoke, which is, which is the town he is the mayor of. He lost Holyoke yeah. by about 400 votes. And I think the fact that he was never able to lead in Holyoke at all on election night, even at any point, whether it was early or late, uh, that I think that should have been the first big flashing light, like, hey, we're not going to be in for a close one here tonight, like we've seen in some of these progressive challenger races. We're, we're in for Neil heading back to Congress. Yeah, if I can bounce off of that point about uh, this being the first progressive to get the hype and still lose, um, I I don't know if you'll agree with this. Let, uh, tell me if you do. Um, I think if this were any other incumbent, Morse probably would have won. Um, Neil had Neil basically had a bottomless war chest. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, no amount of hype, no amount of really online contributions save a bernie sanders style fundraising campaign at a congressional level could have overcome neil Mm -hmm. and this is a predominantly rural district if you look at it overall i mean obviously there's some larger communities but the brunt of the district is more like vermont than it is the rest of the the Mm -hmm. more urban eastern portions of massachusetts so that does make a difference here yeah i mean it's 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 the type of district like that dylan said was probably a, a long shot for places like us. It was kind of that, and I think could argue um, Morgan Harper, who was yeah. the progressive candidate, I believe, in Ohio's third district. Uh, they, they supported this year. Those were kind of their two long shot bids. Uh, neither of them uh, really went particularly well. Uh, Harper lost by over 30 points. Neil's going to lose by nine. Morse, excuse me, is going to lose to Neil here by 19. Uh, so I think what they were hoping for is for someone to get, you know, one of those two to get kind of within that 10 point margin, neither did. So I think we might have to kind of look at maybe some other areas, uh, after going into 2022, uh, where, uh, candidates who they might want to target. I mean, obviously they have, if we want to talk about that, obviously there are candidates they can target. Uh, obviously Carolyn Maloney is going to be one that's going to be talked about. Uh, for a long time, if she does not retire for 2022, she is going to probably be the first person on people's list. Uh, yeah. If if she doesn't retire in 2022, that could talk about someone being primaried. Uh, if we want to go into that, but I think that the fact that none of those, neither of those long shot races really came together, I think shows that uh, I think the group might need to move away from these two candidates. They, I don't think they're going to be put back on the target list, like say like a Henry Quaylor 
will be in 2022. No. Well, there's even a, there's even better targets in Massachusetts and more Democratic districts. I mean, there's plenty of backbenchers that represent more areas around Boston that are more liberal that could be you know that could be gone after. I, I would think. Yeah. I mean, Stephen Lynch. I mean, uh, Stephen Lynch, right? I mean, he he's the one I think people are going to want to talk about if we want to mm-hmm. want to make a point there. Yeah. yeah. Um, what? I, sorry, real quick. What I do think Morse and Harper both did. Um, they've kind of set themselves up, I think, to be s- the successor um, when BD and uh, Neil retire. I think those two are probably your front runners for those seats just because of the inroads they made during their campaigns. Harper got blown out, but she still raised a good amount of money, probably built a good amount of inroads and Morse almost certainly did. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'll, I'll argue for Morse more than uh, Harper just because there's, and I won't more, let you on it. There, there's, there's, there's just, I think, there's Morris is already an elected official in the area. Still, you know, he, he he'll still be able to keep his name up. Say if Neil retires in 2022, especially mm-hmm. uh, I think Harper's going to have to deal with a lot more of that old guard type yeah. uh, in Ohio's third district. And I think that'll make it a lot harder for her if we were to go into stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so overall, uh, one other race to go over in Massachusetts is the 4th Congressional District primary. Uh, to put it bluntly, this district was a complete mess in terms of the primary. It was We're talking about a race where five candidates got over 10% of the vote, and another one's within striking distance of that. Uh, right now, with 22.4% of the vote, uh, Jake Auchincloss appears to have the lead, although not all of the votes are counted, so things could change. He's leads about by 1% over Jesse Mermel. Um, Auchincloss is perceived as the more conservative of the candidates in this district, although that's questionable given, uh, his, uh, by Massachusetts standards, he's fairly moderate compared to the rest of the delegation, but anywhere else in the country, he would be, at least from his policy positions, he'd be fairly liberal. Uh, progressives had really kind of coalesced around Jesse Mermel and hoped that she would win. Uh, Becky Grossman as well, I think had some progressive support as well. Um, as did his lame lucky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they kind of split the vote three ways in that regard. Um, and so right now, um, it appears Auchinloss has the advantage there. Uh, what are your guys' thoughts on that district? This, this Obviously, Massachusetts as a whole is a 9 nothing delegation, so the internal diversity within the Democratic caucus matters a lot more than, than otherwise. stretches through some of the more, I mean, it goes in Boston, but also some of the more conservative areas in the state, um, some of the ones, you know, in the, in the southern portion of southeastern portion of the state um, that that – so it's overall, it's not an extraordinarily progressive seat if you look just on the, on the whole. Yeah, and that was kind of the way that Auchincloss uh, campaigned. He campaigned mostly to those southern, southeastern parts of the district that had the more white working class, the more the more you know old typical style, old school Democrats. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. and he didn't compete in the places like Newton or up there, where or you know places like Brookline or Needham or places that like where. Mermel did well, but and also that we saw Markey do well in. Where we're seeing Auchincloss do really well in is play is places where Kennedy did well in. Mostly, that's that's mostly how it lines up. But I think I think another thing you got to look at here though is also in a lot of those Auchincloss counties are towns that we see him winning. Mermel's finishing third; she's not finishing second. And I think that's really kind of a key part here. 
Uh, Mormal is finishing third to Grossman in a lot of those auction class counties. Mm-hmm. And, that's not, and I think that's a, a key point, you know, especially I think with Lecky in the race. You know, that's that's something that you could certainly argue, you know, takes away from Mermel here. And, you know, you, there's certainly an argument that without her, uh, Mermel's winning this district, winning this race by 10 points. You know, I think that's certainly an argument. I think especially if you look at the numbers, it's just, it was, we knew it was going to be tight going into the night. We knew how that was going to be. The winner is going to finish with under 23% here. Uh, I, I don't think that's in doubt now, even with the ballots we might be waiting on. But, mm-hmm. you know, it was, it, we knew it was going to be tight. I'm, I'm particularly pleased, uh, again, as the Republican, uh, I'm more pleased, again, that we got someone like an Auchincloss who is a former Baker staffer slash helper rather than someone like Jesse Mermel, for sure. But, uh, you know, it's, it's certainly an interesting field. And, you know, it shows that Democrats can have issues in their primaries, too, with not coalescing and not uh, getting maybe the more liberal or progressive candidate they want. You know, it's happened sometimes in Republican circles, too. Mm-hmm. And it's worth noting, Auchincloss isn't uh, completely without you know credibility for progressive voters. He does favor not only an assault weapons ban, but a mandatory national buyback. Um, he favors uh, strong abortion rights. Um, stuff in the Green New Deal, other things along this line. So it's not like he's a, a Jim Cooper or a uh, you know a Henry Quaylar, but he is certainly more more along the Stephen Lynch line of the of the Democratic Party in Massachusetts than the uh, you know the uh, the Ayanna Presley line of the party, like Mermel would be part of. Right. Um, no, progressives do have that problem of not coalescing. Uh, it's certainly not just conservatives. Um, mm-hmm. Auchincloss is, uh, it's weird to say, he, he strikes me as a typical, m- maybe slightly more conservative Massachusetts Democrat. Um, the Charlie Baker, working for Charlie Baker, probably isn't all that uncommon in uh, Democratic circles there. Mm-hmm. Considering yeah, he's 80% popular. approval rating. <laughs> yeah, with Democrats, 80% approval rating for Governor Charlie Baker, a Republican with Democrats. So yes. it's not as effective as an attack ad as you would think, um, especially in a state where it truly has loose partisan affiliation to begin with. I mean, a majority of voters in Massachusetts aren't affiliated with either party. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really think uh, we were talking about this before, but I really think Auction Clause is your prime target for a primary. Um, he's he only won with twenty three percent, so theoretically he is vulnerable. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'll I'll push back on that a little bit. You know, we we we've seen this time and time again though in in both parties where we've seen in these safe seats, you know, someone you know gets gets through with some tight margins. And they're, they're able just to kind of sneak in and sneak through. And people say, oh, well, there's someone – this is someone who could be very easily face primary challenge in, in the coming years because, you know, they only 22 23% of the people in the district in the primary voted for them. But then we see them coalesce. We see them get that incumbency boost. Oh, yeah. And, and I- they turn out fine. I think I, – I understand that Auchincloss is maybe different. Than some of those, than some of those other candidates, and some of how how those other candidates are in these safe seats. But I, I I don't think we can put him as someone who is certain to be primary yet. We have to see what he does. We have to see how he composes himself in Congress, how he votes. Uh, I mean, it'll yeah. be interesting to see. I'm sure for all of us, he's definitely going to be one where 
he's going to have a pretty big eye on him, side eye on him from the progressive side of things, uh, mm -hmm. for sure. But, you know, he, he'll maybe be one of the more interesting Democratic freshmen to watch and see if he breaks with them on anything, uh, theoretically, in a Biden presidency with a Democratic-controlled House. Yeah, mm -hmm. if he if he were to break with Biden on anything major, he would almost certainly face a primary challenge. Um, but regardless, you're right. I mean, this does happen a lot. It, he's not certain to lose by any stretch. Um, I, but I do think when second place is somebody who is ideologically opposed to you and they only lost by 1%, um, I do think that sets up a more likely challenge, not necessarily a victory, but there uh, that's going to be on a lot of progressive groups radar. I think that I think that's fair. I think that's fair. You know, again, I think you're right in that this is this might be something to watch within the coming next two years. I mean, but that, that's not now. For now for now it certainly looks like uh that we have uh We've got our we've got our candidate for them in Entreclos. That's what it looks like for sure. And there's always a possibility that Kennedy tries to come back for his old seat. Now, if, we wanna, if we want to have some fun with that, why not, right? <laughs> and Kennedy would almost certainly get the backing of progressive groups, which would be really weird to see. It would be. Mm -hmm. It would be really weird. <laughs> Definitely. But we'll obviously have to see going forward in that in that you know Massachusetts in general. Obviously, they will be redrawing their maps next cycle. They may look fairly different compared to what you have right now. There was a pretty substantial shift after they lost a district in 2010, and there may be I mean who knows there could be similar changes coming around this time. You may have Stephen Lynch wanting more Republican areas in his district or things along that lines. Uh, but we will be keeping an eye on that in the future. So now we got Massachusetts out of the way. Um, I figure last thing we should probably be able to go over today is the polling changes. Um, we've actually had a lot of polling drop over the last few days. That's kind of been pretty exciting. I mean, just today we had Monmouth polls, Quinnipiac. We had University of New Hampshire dropped uh, yesterday. We have we've had uh, if you if you care about them, you have had Rasmussen, although they're of questionable validity. Uh, we've had CNN, USA Today, uh, Economist. Uh, the Hill, all sorts of polling just, just over the past few days. So what have your, what have your thoughts been off of these national polls to start with? Some of them have been, they've been pretty consistent showing a, a Biden lead nationally of around five to eight percentage points. Some have had it up in the upper bounds of 10 to 11. Some have been closer to four. If again, if you believe we're asking you so much, there are reasons you shouldn't. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Has there been a convention bounce? Is there anything, I mean, has there been any impact from the conventions? Um, go ahead. I, I don't from what we've, at least in the national polls, uh, it doesn't look like it. There does. If we want to talk about when we get to, uh, state level polls, I think there has at least been some movement, I think among Republicans, I think mm -hmm. we have seen some Republicans come home and in certain States, I, I'm looking at Wisconsin, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and kind of in recent polls that we've seen some slight tightening there compared to what we saw in the summer months of June and July. Uh, that looked really, really bad for Trump. Now they just look bad. Uh, <laughs> they're no longer, I wouldn't call them doom anymore. I would say that certainly there are going to be some like state level uh, Republican officials who are kind of breathing sighs of relief, especially, I think, especially in North Carolina with uh, the polls that we've seen there, some tight, certainly some tightening in uh, that state. Uh, people definitely taking breathes, breathing in and out there for sure. 
uh, I think, at the statewide level when it comes to that. But nationally, uh, we haven't really seen a bounce for either candidate. You know, we, we've kind of seen this almost a stabilization at the eight, seven point popular vote lead for Biden, which uh, which mm -hmm. I think all of us can agree that would not be enough for uh, Trump to take any type of electoral college advantage he might have and mm -hmm. uh, take that. No, it's a weird world when a poll that shows Trump down by f uh, by only five in Pennsylvania is a good result. Uh, <laughs> we're really at I a mean, point yeah. where it's less bad. I mean, that's probably enough to save Scott Perry if it's a five point loss. I mean, all things considered, yeah. that's probably the, the ideal goal of the of the Pennsylvania Democratic Party. But other polls have been interesting too. The North Carolina poll. Um, obviously, I'm from North Carolina. I've, I've talked a lot about it. And the status as a Democratic trending state is not only overstated, it's kind of wrong. You look at polls, Biden has a small advantage, but it's around two percentage points, um, which given a seven-point national lead really isn't that much. I mean, Obama won, won nationally by around eight, seven or eight in 2008, and won, won North Carolina by less than he won Indiana. Um, obviously, that was a big shift, and the state is competitive, politically competitive, but it's looking less like a it's looking beyond Florida in terms of targets. Like if, if Biden's worrying about losing North Carolina, there's a lot of other States. Um, there's not a lot of other States that he's needing to worry about at that point. I mean, just, just all things considered, it's probably the, the, the lengthiest of his, of his purely swing state targets, unless you're talking about like an Ohio or an Iowa or a Texas or something along that lines, um, yeah. which those are, those are the stretch goal States, um, Georgia as well. Um, I mean, I, I thought, for example, the Senate poll, which is actually really good for Republicans, is it had Cunningham being uh, up by two, same margin as Biden. But that's pretty good considering most of those voters, uh, it seems like, at least according to this poll, uh, Tillis has coalesced the Republican coalition back under him. So he's getting the voters Trump was getting, uh, which is yeah. he has not been getting before. I've talked about that's probably going to fix itself at some point. But with with voting literally starting here in a couple of days, early voting um, that's kind of a, an important trend, in my opinion. Uh, yeah. I, sorry, I want to see a couple more polls before mm -hmm. I say Tillis is gonna is coalescing uh, the Trump base. I'm yeah, not. But, yeah, but more or less, what I'm, I'm saying, I, I obviously prefaced it with, you know, if this yeah. poll is correct, um, and right. it seems to be higher quality than like East Carolina or Civitas or even like public policy polling stuff along that lines. Right. Um, but Tillis is notoriously unpopular with the Republican base. It, it's not so much a matter of unpopularity. It's that he's not known as much. And there are some residual dislike, which for the life of me, I cannot get given he was the author of pretty much every single Republican piece of legislation that passed from 2010 to 2014, um, which yeah. includes, I mean, pretty much, I mean, I don't get the disdain there. Um, uh, a, good, a good comment here from Eli Berman. How much more conservative is North Carolina than the country as a whole? Um, think about it this way. Uh, it took seven. It took a seven-point win nationally for for Obama to win North Carolina by less than a percentage point. Um, within point ten or point point twenty, I think. So five to six points, I think, sounds about right. Mitt Romney won it while Obama was winning nationally by around uh, five. Uh, obviously, Hillary Clinton won the state by or won nationally by around two or three percentage points and Trump won it by around, I think two or three. So about five points to the right of the country sounds about on average. But again, that really depends on all the past few presidential elections, which Democrats have won by generally all right margins, 
we really don't know how it would hold up in a true 50-50 race. We're both, in that case, I would expect the average generic Republican to win by maybe three or four. It's not that it's not a competitive state. It's that it's uh, there's a lot of competing trends in the state where Republicans can actually make substantial gains that can counterbalance the urban areas. Whereas in places like Georgia or Texas, that really doesn't exist. Um, that's just my thought on the matter in terms of, of yeah. trending. But honestly, there's other – yeah. It's a lot more comparable to Pennsylvania, you know, where while, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the Republicans are struggling with their former old base in the suburbs and maybe the slight cities of the East slash Charlotte, you know, Philadelphia slash Charlotte areas, you're seeing gains out West in those old Democratic areas, both in North Carolina and Pennsylvania for statewide Republicans. You know, that's that's where mm -hmm. you're seeing the growth is out West in kind of those old style Appalachia towns. And that's where mm -hmm. you're kind of There's places they can gain. Yeah. Whereas in, whereas in states like, for example, Georgia, there's really nowhere they can gain. The voting is entirely polarized by race, which it's not in North Carolina. Uh, there's not any particular ethnic minority groups they can go after, whereas I think in North Carolina there certainly are, um, with Native Americans in particular. Um, so that just – I mean, but again, I don't want to go too long on North Carolina, but there are reasons – that if you're if you're looking at states, it's more likely that that Biden if if like Biden is to lose one or two Obama states, North Carolina will be like the top of the list um, in terms of locations, aside from Ohio and Iowa, which of course are have other trends going on there that have made them um, more Republican as of late. Um, but there's also other polls. So for example, one I thought really interesting is New Hampshire. Uh, that's one of the most elastic states in the country. I would have loved to see a presidential poll, but the University of New Hampshire polled the governor and Senate races, and we have both of them as – we have the governor race as safe Republican and the Senate Senate race as safe Democratic. They have uh, Chris Sununu easily dispatching either of his potential Democratic opponents by 25 percentage points, all the while Gene Shaheen, a fairly liberal senator, is winning uh, with a, by around 16 to 18 percentage points. Um, so just another fact of how New England is really – um, you can't you can't typecast it. Um, it's it's quite possible there's a forty point swing in between those two races, and, the, and this obviously we don't know how the presidential race is going to go. Uh, but that's just a factor I find pretty interesting of the of that willingness to ticket split that a lot of other states aren't seeing. Um, it also helps that New Hampshire really doesn't like to get rid of governors on the second <laughs> year of a. They don't like to get rid of governors on a two year term unless it's their fourth year. Um, so basically they, they elect governors every two years, but in practice, they usually give them two years off of a four year term and then just unelect them on the four on the second term. So there's only been one time in the last, I think, century where a, a New Hampshire governor has lost on the first of a four year cycle. Um, it is unusual. They tend to like getting rid of them in off years, like 2010s, 2014s, those sorts of years would be where they like to like to do that sort of thing. Other states that we had polls of, we had polls out of uh, Fox polls, which painted a pretty grim picture for Trump in a lot of swing states. Uh, Wisconsin, in particular, seemed pretty abysmal, uh, the numbers there, but um, but you just kind of throw it all the average. So uh, I guess the final thing on the, set, um, you know, on the polls is what do you foresee coming in the future? Do you think, for example, um, there will be any convention boost? Obviously, uh, the convention was last week, but there's still some some trickling of information. Um, I know Biden started actively campaign. We have the debates coming up. Uh, what what you kind of foresee coming on through some of these newer polls as they come out? Um, I don't expect a convention bump. Um, if we were going to get one for either candidate, I suspect we would have already started to see it. 
um, the conventions were virtual and because of how polarized we are, I just don't see them having a tangible effect. Mm -hmm. uh, as for future polls, I mean, depends on how the debate goes, but again, I'm not sure. I'm not sure the margin moves all that much now to November. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think I'm kind of done on this one here. Uh, I, well, I, I don't know about when we go from here from to November, we've still got two months. Oh yeah. That, that was a bold call. I don't, I don't know if I buy it myself. <laughs> no, we certainly change, but I think I agree with him in that. Uh, if we, if we were going to see a type of legitimate polling bump from either candidate from the conventions, I think we would start to see it by now. So I think we can argue. I would, I would almost argue the fact it, well, it's not really because of polarization. I almost say it would be because these conventions were online, you know, the excitement, the hype around them, the fact that you've got people posting on social media saying, Oh, I'm at the convention, you know, mm -hmm. the attention around them was just nearly not the same as they normally are in any type of year. So, yeah, I, I think that's part of the issue, I think, for both parties is that there, there was just no reason for non-already partisan people to get excited through their convention. So kind of without that, you know, that's what you've lost. So I think that's why I haven't really seen any type of bump this year in polling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I, I can't really disagree with you there. It seems like if there was a change, it would have come through by now. Um, the only really change seems to have been that it's narrowed just a slight bit, but again, five points isn't really that much of a huge difference um, overall, all things considered. Yeah, It, it reminds me of when Hick, uh, John Hickenlooper was cheering in the presidential primary when a poll showed him at 2%. <laughs> we, you shouldn't be that happy about this result. It's not good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you yep. can cheer it to like 20% maybe. <laughs> but yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, obviously a little, bit, a little bit of a shorter episode this week, but um, you know, I think the Massachusetts stuff is really kind of the biggest stuff that was going on for the, you know, for the, I'm just at that point. It's just such a fascinating race that I think most of us here are glad is over. Uh, finally, <laughs> yeah. given the discourse online. Yeah. Yes. Thank God. Progressive, conservative, doesn't matter. I think everyone was pretty much like, we're done with this primary, get it out of the way, move on to something better. Or something worse, just something new. <laughs> yeah. I agree. I agree. Yeah. So uh, with that, I think we'll wrap up this week's edition of Elections Weekly. Uh, thank you all for watching. Really appreciate your support. Uh, if you haven't already, be sure to uh, subscribe to the channel and click the notification uh, bell icon so you get notified when we, when we do these streams. We're actually... We're up to four weekly podcasts now that we're putting out for you, uh, as well as in addition to, you know, um, you know, in addition to the live coverage we do, which I think there's not one for the foreseeable future unless there's an unexpected special election. But we will be coming at you in November with a really, really cool program that we think you'll all really enjoy. So stay tuned for that. Um, where can we find you guys on social media, Dylan and, and Joe, for those who are just listening to the podcast? Um you can find me at Dylan B. Wade one on Twitter and you can find my podcast popcorn politics on Ocelli.com Tuesdays, 6 to 8 PM Eastern standard time. Uh, yeah, guys, you can find me at Joseph Szymanski. That's J O S E P H S Z Y M A N S K I. Uh, you can find me there on Twitter. Uh, that's where you see me post most of my, any connection to the election daily. 
Uh, and that's where you see me. If you decide that you think that I am someone worth listening to, that's where you also see me post most of my hot takes. So um, <laughs> if, you are in, if you're interested in that, if you want to see a Republican side of things, maybe especially if you're a more liberal listener and you maybe don't have a lot of uh, Republicans, uh, you follow. If you want someone who's not going to be yelling at you in your mentions anytime you bring up something liberal, uh, I am certainly one that you could follow for that. <laughs> yeah, I and can... you can, of course, find me at D.E. Cunningham, too, on Twitter. Yeah. Were, were you going to oh, say something, Dylan? Oh, I was going to say, I, he, he never yells at me. I can verify. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, with that, I think we'll close off this week's edition of the podcast. Thank you all for watching, and we'll see you next week. Yeah, thank you, guys. Thanks.